0: What's he about and why did he die? And uh, in our text, in the Gospel of Mark, in the first few weeks of the semester, we've seen Jesus appear on the scene, uh, declare himself to be something like a king. When he comes, he says, the kingdom of God is here, uh, and, y- and you should act appropriately because of that. And in uh, this kingdom, as we saw, has cosmic ramifications. Jesus has come to do nothing less and set things right, to, uh, to take on evil, sin, brokenness, death, sickness, and to reverse its effects. It's cosmic, it's grand in scope, and yet it's also deeply personal. We saw last week uh, that Jesus uh, speaks into the brokenness of a man and forgives his sins. Uh, the question before us today is, how do these two things intersect? Uh, cosmic, grand, scope, Jesus fixing everything, and also this intensely personal uh, relationship with God. Macro, if you will, and micro. Social workers are smiling. Um, put another way. What about you? If you're a Christian or struggling with this, what is God's plan for you? If he forgives you, then what? Well, what's his plan for you as it regards this worldwide, cosmic-wide redemption project God has going on? We're sort of going to work on that tonight as we look through our text. Actually, we're going to read a couple texts tonight. We have a couple different accounts uh, from the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at. So we're going to begin in Mark 1. Please follow along as I read. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the, Simon, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Skipping on to chapter 2. Verse 13, he went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now, chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, or something like that. And that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, let's play together. Jesus, we thank you for the word. Father, we thank you that you've recorded your word in history for our benefit. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show yourself to us in it tonight. We pray, Spirit, you'd be gracious to press these things into reality in our hearts. For those that are Christians, we pray that you would uh, challenge and refresh them. For those that are struggling or, uh, or doubting or uh, deeply cynical, Lord, we pray that you would help them take a, a step forward tonight. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh If you know me and my family, uh, you know we have two kids uh, bordering on four and two, and uh, they're they're very sweet, wonderful children, but not all the time and um, I had a little episode this week that told me about where our uh, youngest child, Abiel, she, she can get a little moody and uh, she was being a little difficult and uh, Caleb, who was three and a half and generally somewhat patient, had, had just about had it. And he turned to my wife, Luda, and said in Russian, like, it's their secret language, so Abiel won't understand it. Um, Mommy, can we put Abiel on a plane? She's a pilot. Yeah, can we put her on a plane, and she go away? She's a pilot. Now, uh, my son, you know, you think, right, he's only three and a half. That's pretty sophisticated. That's a, that's a pretty slick plan for getting rid of your sister. Laughter <sighs> Uh, As pretty effective, it actually worked. And um, uh, in, in that little story, I, I see a little bit of uh, of us. We we he loves his sister. He loves his family. She loves him. Uh, but sometimes we want things our way. Uh, we want our stuff, and we want certain things about all the things. And and that's what we really have in Christianity. Very often, we have folks that want part of the deal, but not all the deal. Um, and to, to highlight this, I'll, I'll quote from Gandhi, who said, uh, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And, and no doubt some of you here today are, could listen to that and say, yeah, I get that. Actually, I, I believe that. I, I like Jesus, or I read his stories, he's beautiful, but then i look at believers, or these people that claim to be believers, and I want nothing to do with them. So I don't mind Christ, but I don't like his community. There's some other of you, perhaps, the other way around, Uh, maybe you like the community, maybe you're coming here and you like these folks and they're nice, but you're not quite sure what to think of Jesus yet, whether or not you want to devote yourself and follow him. And then there's some of you, probably believers, Christians, or you at least grew up in the church, and you really like Jesus and you have a great plan for who he should like. You know which part of the community Jesus really should care about and everybody else he can put on a plane. Um, The short of it is we want things on our own terms. We want Jesus and community on our terms. And uh, Jesus won't have that. We're going to see that in our text tonight, that Jesus has his own plans, because when Jesus calls us to himself, he calls us to a community. And uh, what we have in these three episodes, there's three encounters, is is Jesus building a community, what I'll argue is the church. Um, And in doing so, as he calls these men to himself, calls people to himself, and builds this community, we get three snapshots or portraits of the church. And uh, they're a little bit different. Uh, we have the schoolhouse, the school if you will, we have the hospital, and then lastly we have the church. And I'll talk about each of those. And I think we learned something about Jesus and what the community is supposed to be like at the same time. Okay, so the, uh, the first uh, encounter, uh, we, we find Jesus by the sea, and uh, we find Jesus starting a school And what we have here is an unexpected session of school. This is the exact opposite of a snow day. A snow day, you wake up thinking, I'm supposed to have school today, and you look outside and you have no school. This is the exact opposite. This is an unexpected session of school. There should be no school. Jesus, in verse 15, which you don't have, has just showed up on the scene and said, The kingdom of God is here. He's basically announced, I am the king. I've come to my realm. Repent and believe. That's a pretty clear message. What further is needed? You're the king. This is your property. You can do what you want. And then Jesus, walking by the sea, decides to start a school. And I said weeks ago, when Jesus came on his mission, he came so humbly. Uh, And we see that here. Jesus begins to collect students. We have an unexpected session in verse 15. He walks by the sea. He calls men uh, to follow him. And uh, they're unlikely students. They're young fishermen. Verse 16 Uh, Simon and Andrew, and then also James and John. They're most likely young men, uh, college-aged, maybe younger. And uh, really, nothing to commend themselves to for likely adoption, to begin a new institution of learning. Uh, Galilee was a backwater, middle of nowhere. Uh, These guys were just fishermen. And yet Jesus decides to begin his school with them. And this is not divorced from Jesus' great proclamation that the kingdom is here. This is the way he's going to carry on the work. The king is here. The kingdom's here. Get ready for it. And then he starts a school and calls people to join him. Jesus' plan for extending God's kingdom into the world, for making things right, begins with him calling people to himself. Ordinary people. Unextraordinary people. He, this is a, sort of akin to you know having the right in gym class to pick your team. And intentionally picking the non-athletic people. You know, just sort of saying, you know, today I don't care about winning. How about you and you and you? Oh, yeah, you two, come on. I mean, it's not clear that's what Jesus is doing, but if he wanted an extraordinary group of learners, he could have gone somewhere else. But he didn't. He picked these men. And and next, we get a clue that Jesus is also an unconventional teacher. And that is all over this text, actually. Uh, First, he doesn't have a school. He just says, follow me. Uh, Stop what you're doing and follow me. Follow after me, come behind me. You will learn from me as we go. It's a very personal invitation, and this is extraordinary. Rabbis, which is Jesus sort of setting himself up as a rabbi when he does this, did not do this. Rabbis sat in their house and earned great reputations, and people came to them and applied to study. And the rabbi would say, "Well, let me see your work, and how much can you pay me?" They were very choosy. Uh, Jesus goes out and chooses his own disciples. costs them nothing to follow except for everything, their lives. Um, They don't have to pay. And they follow. And that's the other thing about Jesus that's remarkable. Uh, His authority. He invites them and what do they do? They stop everything and follow. Uh, It's sort of mysterious. I think we get a couple clues here that Jesus was so beautifully charismatic and moving that people wanted to follow him. But also that uh, Jesus is able to make disciples by the authority of his word. He said, follow me, and they did it. It's pretty remarkable. And he invites them to do something, to become fishers of men. In other words, he's saying, this kingdom that I've been talking about, this is the way it's going to work. We're going to go out and catch folks. Uh, you, fishermen, who've been catching fish, and are probably considered uh, you know, socially unimportant, you're actually going to become highly persuasive and very important in culture. You're going to go persuade people that the kingdom of God is real and they're going to join it through you. You're going to become like me. i have been a remarkable invitation to receive. And uh, this whole account really is remarkable. I mean, you think of school as boring, probably, most of the time, or a chore. Uh, This school came out of nowhere and it was part of God's plan to change the world. And he invited men into the middle of it who were completely unqualified, and said, you're going to become like me and share my mission. It's remarkable. It's amazing. So uh, this community that Jesus is starting, it is partly a school. It's a a school where we become like Jesus and learn how to share his message and his mission. Uh, But Jesus is not just interested in informing these men and making them like himself and giving them a mission. It's not just a school that Jesus has come to start. He's also come to start a hospital. The second image is that of a hospital. And we get it in the second chapter. Jesus, by the lake again, uh, is passing by. And again, he calls someone. And and this time, it's Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And uh, whereas the first men he called in chapter 1 were not distinguished, underqualified, uh, Levi was distinctly disqualified. That's now normal, by the way. Um, We just have to get used to that. Last week, I had planned to work into the sermon where they were digging through the roof, but they didn't cooperate with me. So, um, if you were here, that makes sense. Um, uh, Levi is distinctly disqualified. He would have been no one's top pick for any kind of team. He, he He was universally despised as a tax collector. Um... In his culture, the Jewish culture, he would have been a sellout, a traitor, selling his services to the evil Ru- Roman Empire, I almost said Russian, that works too, evil Roman Empire, to, um, to tax his own people. He would have been making money immorally off the backs of his own people, charging them more than they should have, and he would have been hated. And and what we see here, because he was so unqualified, even disqualified, is that the invitation is one of mercy. Jesus can only invite Levi on the basis of mercy. There's no other way in which he can join this community. There's nothing to commend himself. He's just a big, fat negative. And Jesus invites him. Why? Why? It's it's only mercy. And uh, that leads us into the second thing, which was uh, immediately... This would have been messy. We have uh, these four fishermen, Sea of Galilee, worked hard for a living, Levi, tax collector, Sea of Galilee. Y'all know each other? Now, I'm supposing things here, but I think this is reasonable. Y'all met before? Yeah, we met. Yeah, you've been texting me for five years and taking my money. We hate you. We've been praying for God to judge you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Okay, This, this is the messiness of the community that Jesus is making. He's inviting a mixed multitude of folks together that don't always like each other very much. And we see the mess, this messiness of the community continued in in verses 15 and 16 uh, because Jesus hangs out with these folks. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. They're sharing dinner. Jesus is not ashamed to hang out with messy, broken, bad people. These, frankly, are not very good people. Uh, When they use the word sinners, he's talking about notorious sinners like prostitutes, people that the culture would have considered really bad. Jesus was associating with them, which is something holy men of that day did not do. They didn't do that. Uh, this is getting a little shaky and certainly messy. And uh, the good people in this story, it seems, uh, the, the religious folks, the scribes of the Pharisees, see this and they wonder, why? Why is he doing this? How could you do this? And I need to clarify something for you. If you grew up in the church, and even if you didn't, you see Pharisees and you immediately think hypocrites. And they were, uh, in the same way that we all are. Uh, but they weren't just hypocrites, meaning they did bad all the time and pretended they were good. They actually strove to be good. Jesus actually says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, saying they actually are a little bit righteous. You're supposed to be more righteous than them. The people in their day looked up to them as righteous. They were actually trying really hard to be good. And uh, These folks are deeply concerned about what Jesus is doing. We have, a, we have a giant mess here. Here's this holy man who claims to be the king. He's coming to restore all things and he's hanging out with messy dis- distasteful, scandalous sinners. How do we make sense of this? Well, Jesus clears this up for us in verse 17. He uh, basically tells them the mission he's on. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, And Jesus here is sort of going into the psyche of the people at the table. Do you think of yourself as well, or do you think of yourself as sick? Which are you? You're in the doctor's office. There's only one way to see the doctor. You've got to admit you're sick. Jesus is saying, I'm the physician. Do you want mercy? I've come to bring mercy. I've come to bring forgiveness. I've come to bring restoration. Here's the conundrum for them and for you. Are you qualified? Do you want to be qualified? Do you want to to be qualified to see the doctor? You've got to be sick. You have to admit, I have a problem with sin. Or are you the self-righteous folks here that say, what are you doing? You can't do that. You see the conundrum? Are you willing to admit You and these guys, that you need mercy, that you're a sinner. That the only way you get in on this game, closest to Jesus, part of his community, is by means of mercy. That you need a physician, you need someone to tend you and heal you and care for you. That's a conundrum here. And we don't like it, actually. Um, We don't like to be called sinners. None of us really do. Unless you're really deep on the inside of the Christian story and then you know it's true of you. C.S. Lewis talks about this and uh, writes, and I think rightly, the problem here really is pride. Um, and I'll read that in a second, but read another quote to you. This is fun. To really embrace this, we have to get to the point where Groucho Marx did a couple years ago when he wrote a telegram to the Friars Club of Beverly Hills. He wrote, Please accept my resignation. I don't want to belong to any club that will accept people like me as a member. So that's the way it is with the church and this community Jesus is building. He's collecting messy folks. Do you want to get in on that? Uh, yes, maybe. I mean, it's a disaster. Look at those folks. But I need the mercy, and I want to be close to Jesus. And I don't want to be outside, but there's people who are a mess, and I don't want to be in on that. And I don't want to be around them, but I'm a mess. Do you feel the tension? Uh, and the, the issue here is pride. Um, it's not so much that the church is full of hypocrites. It is but you're a hypocrite too. Uh, It's really pride. And C.S. Lewis writes, Theoretically, Christians admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of God. You know, I'm insignificant before you, God. But really, all the time, they're imagining how God approves of them and thinks they're better than ordinary people. What they do is they pay a penny of imaginary humility to God, and they get a pound of pride towards their fellow man. And it works the opposite way, too. We look down on others and feel really good about ourselves and get prideful and look up to God and say, Aren't I doing well? I'm much better than so-and-so. We find a way to tweak the I'm-not-so-good, I'm-good balance to feel pretty good about ourselves and feel like we've merited God's favor. And the only way to get in on this is God's mercy, not merit. We're all desperate sinners. Jesus is saying, well, it depends on how you see yourself. Do you, do you want to come into my office or not? Are you going to sit out in the lobby and think you're healthy when you're not? So let me help you here with a little self-diagnosis. Um, whether or not you're, which out of the... Table here? Are you the desperately sick center or the prideful person? Um, either way, you're in trouble. Uh, who do you look down on? Who do you look down on? It's actually really easy for you here at, at school because you have such a small continuum of folks not to look down on lots of people because you don't see a lot of people. You see 18 to 24 year olds all day long. They're a lot like you. And yet, you still find room in your heart to be petty and judgmental, right? So, um, Maybe it's those naive freshmen that are so optimistic. Like how naive, what are they going to realize? It's not all smiles and ice cream. Freshmen, you don't know this about yourself. Everybody else is laughing. Um, But maybe it's the super awkward, geeky guy that runs everywhere. Like he doesn't have to, you know what I'm talking about. Like he's 10 minutes early for class and he's still running. And it's sort of funny. At the same time, you're like, I'd rather be caught dead than be talk, talking to that guy because it would like deal my social capital a great deal of loss. You know, and the humility would kill me. Um, I mean, I, there, there are people here that you judge. And there are people outside this university that you certainly think you're better than. And there's another kind of person here, too, and that's the person, uh, and some of you are probably here, uh, you have a different kind of pride. It's just as perverted and bad. Instead of judging others, you're judging yourself all the time. Um, you, you heap guilt and shame on yourself you're full of self-loathing and hatred and uh, frankly that's a weird kind of pride too because you're still looking at yourself you're incapable of looking at what God has done for you and what he, how he cares for you and you don't look at others, frankly you don't care about anybody else but yourself it's just a, a perverted sad way of being self-occupied and preoccupied they're both prideful and they both uh, keep you from seeing your need for mercy And coming to that mercy, and so uh, C.S. Lewis goes on and writes, "The real test of being in the presence of God is you either forget about yourself altogether, or you see yourself as some small, dirty object." That language is really harsh, but I'll just simply use what I've been saying: you see yourself as a mess, a mess unable to save yourself, to help yourself. And he goes on and says, "It's much better to forget about yourself altogether." Now he's saying you don't. He's not saying you know stop taking care of yourself and feeding yourself and bathing yourself. For goodness sake, do all those things. But the tyrannical self-preoccupation that rules your life, the narcissistic heart of your life that keeps you centered on yourself all the time, the most liberating thing in your life is to forget about yourself. Yeah, I don't have much of a Christian testimony, but I can tell you that when this began to happen to me, and I began to like literally forget about myself, because I know enough about myself to know I'm not worth thinking about a lot, to free me up to consider others and what God's done for me, Most liberating thing in the world. It's allowed me to enter every room and say, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess. Not in judgment, but just realistically. I'm a mess. I fit right in. Oh, you don't think you're a mess? I know better. You're a mess too. Come on in. I'm free because I realize this is true. I've been admitted in through the mercy of Jesus and set free. It's great. So uh, we have a school, we have a hospital, and lastly, we have a church. And frankly, these first two pictures portraits, if you will, of the community, or just pictures of the church as well. And just by bringing up the word church, some of you may be like, oh, I hate my church. I'll never go to church again if I can. Uh, and some of you are thinking, what's the big deal? It's just church. But uh, it shows how contentious this subject can be. In 3.13, Jesus again calls people to himself. Every account, he's calling people to himself. And, uh, and here he, he goes on and appoints 12, and that's significant. Jesus is doing something very symbolic here. In the Old Testament, God chose his people. There were 12 tribes. There was supposed to be a blessing to the world. He was supposed to be with them, bless them. They were supposed to bless the world. It didn't happen. Uh, and it wasn't because God wasn't, was, wasn't faithful. It's because the people weren't faithful. They failed to live up um, to God's plan and promises. So what did God do? Did he give up? No. Instead, here in Jesus, he moves into the heart of human history in the person of Jesus and does it again calls 12 people to himself. What he's doing is reconstituting the church around himself. And we have here, not the full church, that happens throughout the rest of the New Testament, but the very seeds of the church. He calls 12 men. He gives them authority to do exactly what he does. They're not qualified when he calls them. They're just dudes. Not even very good ones. Unqualified, disqualified. They're just guys. But he makes them qualified. He gives them what they need. And uh, he gives them, as we see... Um, the right to be with himself. This is part of what it means to be in the church, to be part of the community of Jesus. You're with him. They're called to be near Jesus, intimate with him, to depend on him. They don't know where Jesus is going. They don't know what he's doing tomorrow. They don't know any of this. They're dependent on him. They're just going to follow him. Uh, That's what this is about, being in a relationship with Jesus. And that's what you're being invited into in the community of Christ, is to be with him and to be near him and to grow like him. So, a part of being in the church is to be with Christ, to be near Christ. It's always about a relationship with him. But it's also about witness. We see in the text that these men are, are given the authority to preach. They're, they're called here, again, to be fishers of men. This is how the kingdom of Christ grows. We don't actually like this, necessarily, sometimes in our culture. This preaching thing, like what I'm doing now. Uh, we can call it a talk. What I'm preaching, um, but his idea that someone is trying to persuade you of something that's true is maybe offensive to our postmodern sensitivities, sensitivities, whatever. And um, but this is God's plan. This is God's plan for extending the kingdom. This is what Jesus has done. He's declared the kingdom is here, the King is here. What's his plan? Call some people, share with them who I am, and send them out to share the message of God's free grace and mercy to others. That's God's plan for changing the whole world. That's it. There is no plan B. And that plan means me teaching and sharing so that you actually understand it and you're willing to share it too. That is God's plan. There is no other. And uh, I don't think it's a terribly offensive and drastically dastardly thing to do either. Um, uh, As the pastor at City pointed out the other Sunday, uh, the atheist Penn, who's a comic, has pointed out, and he's a very outspoken atheist, if you're a Christian, and you believe it's true, and that people are going to hell if you don't share the message, you would have to hate everyone not to be willing to share the message. You would have to be a terrible person not to share the message. And he's right. I mean, that's, that's the deal. If you believe this is true, and that God is merciful, and you don't share it, then what kind of person are you? Now, there are lots of reasons we don't share the message. It's not just because you hate people. It's because you're afraid. Um, but that's for another time. Uh, So we're called to share our intimacy with him, to be with him. We're called to witness. Uh, The church is to be a place of witness. And also, it's still to be a place of weakness. It's it's to be a place where weak folks are free to come and be healed by Jesus. We just get a clue of it in the text, but they're given the authority to cast out demons. Now, this is hard to understand. Uh, But it's 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 simply just a, a footnote that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And this goes back to the whole hospital scene. The world is full of broken people. They're oppressed. They're suppressed. They've hurt themselves through their sinfulness and selfishness. They've been hurt by others. Some of you have reaped both those things. If you could honestly look back at your life, you could say, I've made decisions that have ruined me. Maybe not irreparably, but I've made some decisions and done some things I would love to take back because I'm a different kind of person because of them. And some of you could look back honestly and say, this person deeply scarred me for life, and I hope God can fix this. You've been harmed by others. God knows the world's like this. It's a hospital. The church is called to be a hospital. A, a place that's safe for people in their weakness. The church is supposed to be all these things at once. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what the community of Christ is supposed to be like. Something that's close to Jesus, about being intimate and near to Jesus. A, a place that shares the message of His mercy. And yet, is a place for, for broken, even bad, frankly, bad people, scandalous people to come and feel safe to process the message. That's what we have here. Um, now, what about you? Where are you in the story? It's, it's a good question. Where are you in the story? Because there's so many different places you could be. You might just be wandering along, lost by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you don't know what you're doing. That's okay. Um, but I'll do. As, I'll speak as I often do. Perhaps you're here struggling with the message. You don't know what you think about Christianity or Jesus. Um, and I understand. What are you going to do with this dichotomy, this challenge you get in the second scene where Jesus says, you know, there are two kind of folks here. There are folks that think they're well. And there are folks that know they're sick. Are you able to say, there, there is something wrong with me. There is something deep down. Ugh, I don't like myself sometimes. And I'm not pretty sure God doesn't either. And that might be true. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You have a physician Is willing to heal you, that extends mercy to you, is willing to forgive everything if you come to Him. Um, And uh, for the rest of you, uh, consider yourselves Christians, even if you might be wrong. (laughs) Um, Where do you see yourself in these accounts? Who are you? First of all, I've been talking about the church about as overtly as I ever will, perhaps. What do you think about the church? Do you love the church? This is Jesus' plan. This is what Jesus came and did. He started this thing. And you perhaps have been burned by the church. You've seen lots of deadness and hypocrisy in the church. Perhaps your family's been burned by the church. You see no reason to embrace the church. I understand. So one of my good professors used to teach me all the time. I understand. But abuse does not negate proper use. You know, if we throw out everything because it was abused, we have to throw out everything because everything is abused in our world. But this is the way the church is supposed to be and can be, and often is. Do you love this thing? Do you want to be close to it? This is the means for you to be close to Jesus. The means for you to grow as a disciple and to share the message and to be a safe place for other people to come to him. Uh, Are you in the school? I know you're in this school. I know this school takes up a lot of your time and your emotional energy and your heart. But are you in this school as well? Are you willing to follow Jesus and have him teach you? That you become like him and share his message and are willing to share his message and say, I'm part of the kingdom of God. Part of my job as a Christian is to share his message of mercy. Are you willing to do that? If you're not, part of it is you forgot that you were in the hospital. That you were in the hospital and the only way you let, you got treated in the first place and were healed and came to him is because he was merciful to you. So remember what he's done for you. If you're not willing to share the message, remember what Christ has done for you. He has called you to himself. He has died for you. He has forgiven you. He has given you his righteousness. He's called you a son and daughter. He's made you part of his body. He loves you. If you're not moved to share that message and you know all that, you need to come and talk to me. Uh, Do you see yourself uh, in the hospital? You're in the hospital. You know know you're a mess. (laughs) I, I can't actually leave the hospital. I'm too much of a mess to actually get out. I just want to sit here. In my self pity and loathing because it's easy and I know I'm a mess. Well, I understand. Sometimes it's like that. God's mercy is enough for you. And there's a mission for you. There's a mission for you. There's something to live for besides gazing at your navel in self pity. You have a great purpose. You're part of the world conquest of redemption that God has planned. It's a merciful, gracious plan. That God's invited you into. It's a it's a merciful, gracious community. God's invited you into. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that when you came and called us to yourself, you didn't.